Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. As was mentioned earlier, if you're one of our guests, we're especially glad you're here. We hope you will stick around after services. Let us get to know you and you get to know us just a bit better. Just one programming note. Next Sunday, uh, we have the privilege, the blessing of having Brother Dan Rodriguez here uh, to teach Bible class and to preach the sermon. And Dan Rodriguez, a minister here, got his start here many, many moons ago. And he's going to be in town for the restoration initiative uh, that we're hosting for leaders of churches up and down the valley. And he has agreed to teach Bible class and to preach the sermon next Sunday. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm sure uh, you are as well. Grab your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We continue to work through the epistle of 1 John, a, a book of the Bible written to give us the assurance of our salvation, that indeed we are saved to the uttermost, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And it is out of what Christ has done <clears throat> and the fact that we are saved to the uttermost that we live lives of holiness. And specifically in the context here of 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and following, we live out a life of love for one another. Well, we've covered verses 7 through 16. Our attention this morning is on verses 17 through 21 of 1 John chapter 4. Hear now the word of the true and living God. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let us pray. Father, bless the reading of your word, bless us as we study your word, and then bless us as we seek to do your word. We need a help, Father, and only you can give us the spiritual enlightenment, the spiritual discernment that we need to see the things that are contained in your glorious word. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. When Jacob flees Laban in Genesis chapter 31, it is a tense scene. Laban accuses Jacob of stealing his idols, his household gods. It turns out that it was actually Jacob's wife, Rachel, Laban's daughter, who had stolen the household gods. And then she had hidden them 
so that Laban could not find them. And so when Laban's search turns fruitless, Jacob goes on the offensive. He accuses Laban of changing his wages ten times. And then he says in Genesis 31 and verse 42, Jacob says to Laban, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. There is a number of various lessons that can be pulled from this entire dysfunctional scene, this whole dysfunctional family. But it is that phrase, the fear of Isaac, that I want to draw our attention to. This is how Jacob describes the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, his own God, the God of Jacob. He describes God, calls God the fear of Isaac. Fear there in my Bible translated because it is parallel, synonymous with God. That Yahweh is the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. When Laban and Jacob make covenant later on in chapter 31, when Jacob swears his oath in verse 53. He says, The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. There it is again. It is a very interesting way of talking about God. He is the fear. The fear of Isaac. Even then, we can dig back into the historical record of Genesis and see Perhaps the nexus of that, the origin of it, all the way back, probably at Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain, and you have the whole scene where Abraham is fully prepared, and indeed does sacrifice Isaac. Isaac is as good as dead in Abraham's mind, but his hand is stayed by the angel of Yahweh. Maybe it's that scene that Isaac began to call upon the God of Abraham as the fear, my fear, the fear of Isaac. God is the one that we are to fear. We have exhortations in Scripture. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, fear God and keep His commandments. Even Jesus Himself in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28 says, fear the one who can kill body and soul in hell. It is Yahweh you shall fear, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13. And yet at the same time, we do read in the Bible places where we are not to fear God, where we are exhorted, do not fear. And of course, in our text this morning, in verse 18, perfect love casts out fear. I think we would all agree that God is perfect in His love. It is we who are imperfect in loving God. We are imperfect in loving others, loving one another as we ought to. So how should we understand 
that God is the fear of Isaac and that he is the one that we are to fear. And yet, on, on the other hand, and at the same time, we recognize that his love perfected in us casts out, drives out fear. Our text this morning shows us that God, he, he perfects his love within us. That is, God brings to completion His love in us so that we can love one another. Verses 17 through 21 here, it discusses the marvelous effects of God's perfecting love in us. Verses 17 and 18, we see that God's perfected love in us gives us confidence for the future. We see there in verse 17 that... This is, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. John, the apostle, walks us all the way to the end of time, all the way to the judgment day, and there is a judgment day coming. God has given definitive proof that He will judge the world in righteousness by raising Jesus from the dead, and it is Jesus Himself who will do the judging on that day. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31 Tell us this. This is why God commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn to God, to put their faith in Christ, and to be obedient to Him in all things. The day of judgment is coming. But God's perfected love in us gives us confidence for that. Now, this idea of perfect love or or love being perfected, we've already come across it back in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. And what perfect love or or God-perfecting love in us means is that God is bringing about the full expression of that love. That love is being made perfect, it is being made complete, so that it exists in its finished reality someday. And again, it is God who does this. It is a passive voice verb. God is the one who's doing this within us. He is bringing to completion. He is making perfect His love with us. And notice the way it is written here, verse 17, by this is love perfected with us. That it is true that the saints of God do cooperate with God in this. Of course we want God to perfect His love within us because we acknowledge Again, we, the reality of our imperfect love. And so we want God to bring it about, and we look to Him to do just that. We participate in His love. And again, notice the purpose here, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. This is something that John has mentioned already earlier, way back in chapter uh, 2 and verse 28. 1 John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. The coming of Christ, the second coming, the final coming of Christ. And when Jesus comes back, that is what inaugurates and kicks off the day of judgment, the last day, the judgment day. There will be two kinds of people on the day of judgment. There will be those Christians who have confidence, who who have no need to be ashamed. Indeed, we 
We long for and we look to and we love the day when He will come back. Because when He comes back, we will see Him. But then there are those who look to the day of judgment and all there will be is fear, dread, terror. Because they will have to face the God that they have run from and rebelled against all of their lives. Some of whom have said, He doesn't even exist. They will have to stand before and give an account to the one that they know does exist. Deep down in their heart of hearts. They may say, they may talk a good game, but deep down every single person knows and cannot not know there is a God. He does exist. He is immensely powerful. And because of the resurrection, He's coming back. And final justice must be done. A Christian has no need for fear. We can have confidence on that day. Uh, we can stand before God even with boldness. No fear. Nothing to fear. And it's not because of anything in us, you understand. If it were just us on the day of judgment, we'd be right there with the rest of humanity. Dread, terror, fear. No, our confidence is rooted in Christ and what He has done. That He is our advocate to lean into language John has used elsewhere earlier in 1 John. That He doesn't plead our case. We have no case to plead. He pleads His own case, His own righteousness on our behalf. And so, yes, we can stand before God in confidence, but again, it's confidence in Christ. And notice also the connection here, because as He is, so also are we in this world. Talk about Christ, how is He? He's pure, He's righteous. And so also are we right now. We, we are pure and righteous Again, because we are clothed in the seamless garment of Christ's righteousness and His purity. And that is what God sees when He looks upon us, is the completed work of Christ. This is the assurance that we have. That on the day of judgment, we have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. And again, what a blessed assurance. That it is because of Christ that we can even hasten the day of His coming. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. And, and here's the entrance of the other side of this, which is fear. And we do need to pause for just a moment and properly talk about what we mean when we talk about the fear of the Lord. Because there are places in Scripture where the fear of the Lord is a good thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to you be a knowledgeable person? You want to be a wise person? Fear God. Keep His commandments. So, we are to fear, but here is John talking about love casting out fear. What do we mean by fear? And, and especially in the context of loving and, and the perfection of love within us. Well, perfecting uh, love or perfect love, casting out fear, does not mean that it casts out every kind of fear because as we see from Scripture elsewhere, there is an appropriate fear that we are to have of God. And that kind of fear is reverential awe and respect. It is attitudinal that we have toward God for who He is and also what He has done on our behalf. The context here also points to the fact that there is a specific kind of fear that is being cast out and driven out. It is the kind of fear that has to do with punishment. Notice that again, verse 18, for fear has to do with punishment. That's the kind of fear that's being cast out. It's the kind of fear that has to do with punishment because, again, we understand as Christians all of our sins 
And all the punishment that is due us for our sins has been exhausted in Christ on the cross. That's why we have nothing, no punishment, no torment is uh, another way that can be translated. That has nothing to do with us because Christ has taken all of it and exhausted it on the cross on our behalf. And indeed, Christians do fear the Lord. We do have that reverential awe and respect for God because He is our Creator who is also our Redeemer. And when God is our Redeemer, we don't fear God's punishment. We don't fear His torment. No, no, that's something altogether different and is cast out because of perfect love. That kind of fear that has to do with torment, punishment, the judgment. God has passed judgment on our sins. He did it at the cross. God has exhausted the punishment for our sins. He did it at the cross. That's why perfect love casts out fear. And so, again, there is no fear in love, no servile, slavish fear. I believe Paul talks similarly in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. Again, but it doesn't cast out that reverence. It doesn't drive away the respect and the awe that we have for what God, for who He is and what He has done on our behalf. But again, perfect love, it does cast out fear. And the casting out here, this is a present tense verb. So what that means is not that, that fear isn't driven out all at once forever. But what John is communicating here is that He's, he's very pastoral. He is Elder John, 2nd, 3rd John. That's how he talks about himself. And so he knows the struggle that we have. But there are times, from time to time, that, that in our minds, we still battle with the world. We still battle with the flesh. We still battle with the devil. There are times when that fear comes creeping back in. And there are times when we need to be reminded and assured of the promises of God. Why? Why God has seen to it that we have His Word today is so that we can come back to it and over and over we can remind ourselves of the promises of God. Whenever those fears arise, we can remind ourselves that He really does love us just like that. And, and in that way, again, the, perfect ten, or the, the present tense reality of this, perfect love has to continually drive out those fears. And indeed, God's love in us does just that. And when those fears, when those uh, ideas arise in our minds, that dread, that terror can be driven away. It's cast out. There's no place for it. And it's driven out by the perfect love and the promises, the assurances of God's perfect love for us. Fear has to do with punishment. John says here punishment has to do with severe suffering, torment. In fact, there are some translations that that translated that way, as I mentioned, torment. There is another person in the New Testament who uses this term. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46, it's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who uses the same word. And of course, we know that in Matthew 25, verses 31 to the end of the chapter, there's this parable that Jesus tells about that coming day. The final judgment, when Jesus comes back and you have the, the sheep on the right and the goats on the left, and it, and it is judgment that takes place. And, and for those who have been obedient to Christ, His people, well, 
well done, good and faithful servant, and uh, we, we get to enter into the rest that He has for us. But for those who have not been obedient to God and persist in the rebellion, well, all that remains is to be cast out. Verse 46 says that these go away into eternal punishment. These who are unrighteous, who are wicked, they go away into eternal punishment. There it is. Punishment. Torment. I know there are those who want to play with this phrase, eternal punishment. But the reality is, this is Jesus talking about eternal, conscious torment away from His presence for all of eternity. Eternal has to do with quantitative aspect, that it goes on forever and ever, and it never ends. It also has to do with a qualitative aspect. That it is altogether different than anything we've ever experienced in this life because it's a spiritual reality. Eternal punishment is just what Jesus describes here. But the righteous, he says, the righteous enter into eternal life. Life is something that John has talked about time and again in, in 1 John. And he'll, he'll continue to talk about it into chapter 5. That we do have, right now even, eternal life with God. That we can enjoy this eternal life. And it is Jesus himself who gives it to us. We have no need to fear eternal punishment. Those of us who have eternal life, we anticipate and look forward to the reality that there's more in store. There is more coming. Fear has to do with punishment. The one fearing, that's a present tense uh, reality as well. What is your habitual practice? That's what John is talking about here. What is your career? Is it one of fear? The one who fears has not been perfected in love is not being perfected in love. Indeed, the one who is fearing, this would seem to indicate the, the unbeliever. You see, again, while the unbeliever may talk a good game and may make many proclamations and claims and boasts even, the reality is, deep down again, not only do they know there's a God, but they know they've broken His law. And there's the inescapable reality that, again, final justice and final judgment is coming. And so all there is is fear. That, that fear of what is yet to come at the end of time certainly manifests in the here and the now with fear of, of everything. Fear of power lines and fear of 5G networks or 10G or whatever's coming, right? Fear of all kinds of things in this world. But for the Christian, the one who is consumed with Loving God, with loving their brothers, their sisters. Ah, God's love is being perfected in that one. It has been perfected and, and continues to be perfected and brought to completion. And again, it is God who does that. And John is saying, these two realities, they, they can't coexist. And this is why God's love, His perfect love, casts out fear. And then verses 19 through 21, God's perfected love within us, it enables us to love one another as we ought to. We love because He first loved us. And there's 
so much that can be said about this one verse. It's, it's so simple, and yet it's a profound truth that is found all throughout Scripture. That God loved us first. And indeed, God does love first. And so we love, we, we keep on loving, and, and there are <clears throat> some manuscripts that have come down to us uh, throughout church history that some say we love Him, some say we love God. But it does seem that what John wrote, and that's what we ought to be concerned with, is we love. Contextually, who do we love? We love God? Sure. That may be why, as the, the text has come down to us, some scribe, well-intentioned, no doubt, has sought to insert here the clarification, we love Him, we love God. But contextually, John is talking about love for our brothers and our sisters. We keep on loving our brothers and sisters. Why? Because He, God, loved us first. God loves us first and loved us first. Loved us from all eternity. This is, as one writer put it, the foundation of our love to God. Another says that all human love is preceded and generated by the love of God. Indeed, we don't know what love is, except it's first rooted in our theology, rooted in our understanding of who God is. By the way, when you want to disconnect yourself from God and from theology, we should not be surprised that we're seeing love distorted in a number of different ways and expressed in all kinds of ungodly and distorted ways. The humanistic modern philosophy that love is love is a lie and has no basis in Scripture. And, and I use that strong language because I'm leaning into the language that John here provides for us. And by the way, He loved us. He first loved us. Christ goes to the cross not so that God could love us or to somehow make us lovable. God loved us when we were still weak, ungodly sinners who were His enemies. Christ died because God already loved us. That's the nature of the gospel. John goes on here in verse 20 to talk about those who claim to love God but hate their brothers. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And, and again, this is, this is a, a present tense thing. It points to the, what's your, what's your habitual practice? What's your career? If your life is one where you hate your brothers, and we need, we need to make sure that we're clear on this, hatred is more than just animosity and ugh, right? It's more than just that, well, hatred. What we tend to think about is hatred. <clears throat> as we have seen, as we've been walking through this, Hatred is anything less than love. And it could even be passive indifference toward our brothers and sisters. Where we can take it or leave it. By the way, and I've mentioned, mentioned it before, this strikes at the, the heresy that you can love God, but uh, have kind of a tepid relationship with this church. You know, I... I love God, but the church, eh, it's just a bunch of imperfect people anyway. And 
You cannot claim to love the bridegroom while slighting his bride. You must love the church. And not just have a passive indifference toward the church, toward the bride of Christ. And that's why John minces no words. He's a liar. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. This is a scathing rebuke by the apostle. The apostle of love, by the way. And yet John, he's already done this before. Back in 1 and verse 6 of this same epistle. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 2 and verse 4 of 1 John. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This is a dangerous lie, another dangerous lie. Claiming to love God, but hating, and, and again, understanding, not loving God's people, that, that simply cannot exist. Not for, not for the redeemed of God. Not for the sanctified heart. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. By the way, you do see your brother, your sister. That's the church. That's, that's the saints of God. And, and we have seen our brothers and sisters. And again, understand in the first century context, it was more than just going to church. You see, they were so busy being the church that they didn't have time just to go to church. And they saw one another on a daily basis. And, and, and I know many of you do that. You do see your brothers and sisters. You check in with one another on a regular, even daily basis. And so, yeah, you've seen the bride of Christ. You've seen the redeemed of God. You've seen your brothers and sisters. Well, John says, if, if you don't love your brothers and your sisters, and by the way, there's how you know hatred is not loving your brothers and sisters. There's the parallel. Your brothers and sisters whom you have seen, you are not able, that's the force of this, you are unable to love God whom you have not seen. And, and if you can't say amen, say ouch, right? That's, that's the force of this. Cannot love God, is unable to. One writer has put it this way, to affirm one's love for the unseen while failing to love the seen, is to enter the realm of fantasy. We've already seen back in verse 12, no one's ever seen God, so John is once again affirming what he plainly stated there. But again, you see, you see the church constantly. You see Christ's bride all the time. No, these claims cannot abide. And so, verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. By the way, it's good. what's good for the goose, good for the gander, right? Brothers and sisters. If we truly love God, we must also love God's children. Those are your brothers and sisters. In a couple weeks, we'll talk about what that looks like with the, the new birth and, and faith and all that when we get to chapter 5. But here, again, John is talking about the present reality. The one loving God. You love God, don't you? Well, you must also 
make it your habitual practice, your career to love your brothers and your sisters. And it's, it's a positive command. We, we're privileged to love the saints of God. We're privileged to love our brothers and our sisters. Privileged to love the children of the Father. And indeed, we're just as privileged to love our brothers and sisters as we are privileged and blessed to love the Father Himself. There is a, a universal consciousness of God. Everybody knows there's a God. Now, those outside of Christ will wrestle furiously against that. They'll suppress that truth in unrighteousness. But everybody knows there is a God. And everybody knows they've broken His law. Everyone knows these things. And you put it together, and as I've stressed as we've gone along, there is this universal awareness that the God that we have offended is the same one we must stand before on the day of judgment. That judgment is coming. We know it's coming. It is also something we cannot not know. And with the coming judgment, there is cause for fear with all those who do not know Christ, who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel, because justice must be done. The good news is, through the gospel, God loved us first. And it is because He so loved us that He gave us Jesus. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. We saw that last week in verse 16. God has satisfied His own justice for our sins. He has judged our sins on the cross in His Son. And as our Redeemer, yes, we do reverence Him with awe and respect that is due Him. And as our Lord, we submit to Him in all things, especially in loving our siblings. Let us commit this to prayer. We are once again impressed with your perfect love, Father. The love that you have for each one of us. And as a result that we are loved by you, Father, help us to love one another. We know that we fall short of this. We fail. That we are imperfect in showing love. Father, help us. Help us to love one another and help us to forgive one another when we fall short. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.